Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And as you're turning there, let me say, Darlene, that I totally support the decision to take the kitchen knives first. Uh, maybe the pictures of Malik and the girls, but Nate can probably stay at home. <laughs> Luke chapter 12. This morning we are concluding our series entitled Face to Face with Jesus. And I know that I've been blessed by hearing uh, directly from our Savior himself. And I trust that you have as well. Well, the length of our parable this morning uh, does not uh, determine its power. It is deceptively simple and short, and yet is very rich with truth and encouragement this morning. So uh, let's be ready to read Luke 12, 35 through 38. And before we go to God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help. Lord, we acknowledge ourselves in your sight as being of great need of mercy and love. And we thank you for your word, the gift that it is. We don't deserve it, but we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now with power, with glory to show us Jesus May we see him and him alone. We pray this in his name. Amen. Luke 12, verses 35 through 38. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open doors to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Now this parable at first doesn't really sound like a parable, does it? It comes in the middle of a dialogue that Jesus has had with a great crowd and with his disciples. He's already in Luke 12 told them a parable called the rich fool about a man who has a lot of wealth and a lot of grain and who decides that he's going to build even bigger grain houses to store his grain and uh, tells us that that very night he died and what a waste it was to spend his gifts and his blessing from God on things of himself. He's already in Luke 12 admonished his disciples as well as the gathering crowd not to fear those who could kill your body. Or take your life, as we've heard testimony about this morning already. But to fear God and to acknowledge Christ before men. Jesus has already told them in Luke 12 not to be anxious about their life. What they will eat or what they will wear. Because even by looking at the birds that are in the air and see how God takes care of his creatures. And how much more valuable are you and I and human beings than those creatures and he takes care of them and then in one of the most astounding statements maybe from jesus in the whole bible he said in luke 12 that it is god's good pleasure it is god's good pleasure he wants to give his people the kingdom not only do we get the kingdom but god wants to give it but just before verse 35 in our text we read in verse 34 where jesus says these words for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he tells this parable. What is often and commonly called the parable of the watchman. Or it's also called the parable of the self-emptying master. 
J.C. Ryle asks about treasure. Would we know what our treasure is? Let us ask ourselves what we love the most. This is the true test of character. This is the pulse of our religion. What do we love? Or we could say another way that we deal with in our text this morning. What do we long for? What are we expecting? What do we want? Now the parable begins with an instruction, presumably from the master. It says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, some of your translations might say something else, or maybe your translation has a footnote where it says, keep your loins girded. Now what that's talking about is the fact that in men and women in the ancient Middle East wore robes that were so long they would almost come to the floor. And so if you wore these big long robes because the hot climate and lack of air conditioning thousands of years ago uh, made loose fitting clothing the preference. People didn't wear skinny jeans or tight clothing. It was long robes because it was so hot and so miserable that you would walk around for practical comfort's sake with these loose robes. Now engaging, therefore, in any type of strenuous activity whatsoever would require you to tie a belt or to take a rope around your waist to keep the bottom out of the way and to keep you from tripping or doing whatever task you're about to complete. So if you're going to do anything in the Middle East, you put a belt on. Or as what the scripture calls in many other places, you gird your loins. You get ready. You stay dressed for action. In Exodus 12, verse 11, the Jewish people were commanded to tie up their robes on the eve of Passover. To be ready to travel and to leave captivity on their way to the promised land. So you not only uh, belt yourself up or tie a rope around your, your robe to do something, you'd also be ready to go, be ready to travel. Be ready to leave. You're going somewhere. In 1 Kings 18:46, Elijah girded up his loins or belted himself in preparation for running before Ahab's chariot. In the first chapter of Jeremiah, the prophet is told by God to belt himself before beginning his ministry to the nations. Point being, to dress yourself or to stay dressed for action, to put on a belt was to assume work and preparation, and even readiness to go somewhere. And the likewise is that if you weren't belted, if you weren't ready for action, then you were in no condition to serve. You were in no condition to leave or to go anywhere. Servants were expected to be ready to carry out any order the master gives, regardless of how difficult or strenuous it may be. And they were also told to keep their lamps lit, now, again, this is 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. And so keeping your lamps lit at night, regardless of the hour, was not only a difficult task, but it also was a costly one. You didn't keep your lamps lit for any trivial reasons. You kept it lit for a practical and important reason. And here these servants are told by their master, be ready to work and keep your lamps lit, regardless of how dark it gets regardless of how long it takes. So stay ready. Be on the alert. But why? Why are they told this? They're waiting for their master to come home, we're told. Waiting is what most of your translations probably say. 
Expecting is another word that could be used here uh, from the Greek. And I like the word expecting. Because if you think about it, we can all wait for people, right? Who really likes to wait for something or to wait for people? Waiting can sometimes be tedious. I'm waiting in a doctor's office. Or I'm waiting for my spouse to get ready as well. I didn't say husband or wife. I just said spouse. We don't like to wait. But the idea behind here in our text is to be excited that something's going to happen. To even expect it to happen. To even want it to happen. To long for something. To even long for the return of the master. I remember uh, as a child, my grandfather would take me with him to the airport. My aunt and uncle would fly uh, into town a few times a year. And this was back when you could go uh, up to the gate of an airport without having a ticket. And I remember as a child going with him and being so excited to stand there at the gate in the airport and to watch all the people come off the tarmac and to walk in and you'd stand there and you could see the people coming around the corner. And every person or couple that would turn the corner, I would hope and wait and be excited that it was my aunt and uncle. That's the kind of expectation he's talking about here. Not just to stay awake, keep from being as bored as you can, but to long for the return of the master from this wedding feast. To be excited about it. To anticipate it. And to look forward. And the master does return home. He, he arrives. And once he arrives, the story takes some dramatic turns. First, some talk about the master withdrawing from the wedding feast rather than just returning to it. So this master, he's at a wedding feast and as a master who has servants or slaves, presumably he's a wealthy man and an important man in the community. And so if he were going to this wedding feast, he was giving honor to those who were being married and to their families. So there's a question that some commentators wrestle with is when did this master return home? The text doesn't clearly say, but what it seems to suggest is that he withdrew from the wedding feast before it was over. Now, we all know about going to parties, right? And we all know about leaving parties. You you leave a party for one of two reasons, right? You either leave uh, early or you leave after it's over. If you're at a party and you're going to leave, you either leave early or you leave the party because it's over. Now... If you're going to leave because it's over, it's obvious why you would leave, right? This is simple. But if you leave early, you leave for a reason. And maybe you've got other business or commitments that need attending to. So if this wealthy master is leaving the wedding feast early, the hearer in that day would expect and assume that he must be up to something very important. He wouldn't leave early just for any reason at all. The, the hearer would assume that there must be a grand reason or maybe there's another feast or banquet or some other business this man has to attend to. So what's he up to? Well, we're told he goes right home and he does something bizarre that, again, reading the text at first, we might not think about it, but he goes home and he knocks on his own door. Now, who here, upon arriving home, regardless of the hour of the day, knocks on your own door? When you go home, do you knock on your own door? 
Or you just go in, go in. Now, usually you might knock, right, if you forgot your keys or if you're locked out. But if you've got your keys, if you have access and you have every right to enter your own home, who would knock and ask permission to enter their own home? Well, this master does. And it's not just what he does. It's also what he doesn't do. The custom in that time was to knock as well as call out. So, hello, I'm home. We're here. Honey, I'm home. I'm back. I've arrived. Now, strangers would knock on doors and not call out. But friends and family members or homeowners would call out. Because people back then on how, who had homes didn't answer knocks. But they answered familiar voices. So we're left to wonder, why doesn't this master call out? Well, it's a test. He told his servants to stay ready and stay awake. And think about it. If he were to call out, I'm here. What might happen? Well, if you were asleep, it might wake you up, right? But a knock, depending on how good of a sleeper you are, a knock at the door could wake you up, but probably not. Now, for those of you who are parents in here, I know you all have six senses and high-tuned frequencies. My mother used to say that she could hear us turn down the street when we were teenagers coming home from a party late at night. She could even, you know, a mile away, you could hear the engine of the car. But regardless, you, if you were a, a servant being told to stay awake, could be very late in the night, a knock on the door probably would not wake you up. But who would hear and answer a knock? Somebody who was expecting it. Somebody who was listening for it. Somebody who is longing for that knock, that knock which is a sweet sound because it means the master's home. He's returned. He's back. The actions of this master are countercultural and amazing. Jesus tells us that those who remain awake are blessed. Think of other times when Jesus himself asked his followers to stay awake. His darkest hour... The night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asks his closest disciples to stay awake while he prays and surrenders to the will of the Father to go to Calvary and to take your sin and my sin upon himself and to be separated from his Father. Such anxiety and pain that causes him to surrender to his Father in a pool of his own blood. And yet those closest to him fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake, even just a few hours. And yet we know he loves them and forgave them. Oh, how he loves and forgives. Well, Jesus in this parable not only tells us that these servants are blessed, but he tells us how they were blessed. These servants have been waiting loyally and faithfully to serve their master. says he might come home in the second watch which in the uh, Middle East, there'd be three night watches. It'd be from sunset until 10 p.m. was the first watch. Everyone could handle that. You could stay up till 10 pretty easily. The second watch was 10 p.m. till 2 a.m., a little bit harder to stay awake for. The third watch was 2 a.m. until sunrise. 
So we don't know when the master will arrive. And he comes in late. But upon arrival, the master does something again. Incredibly bizarre. He's told them to be ready and to stay dressed for action. Again, to gird up their loins or to belt themselves. But we're told that this master immediately belts himself for service. Now we're left wondering, what's he going to do? Is he going to scrub the floors? Is he going to pick up after the card game? The master himself, wealthy and dignified, worthy of honor and service, belts himself and prepares to serve the lowest of the low. Imagine with me this scene. The master, he leaves home and he tells his servants, be ready to serve. Stay dressed for action. And what does he do when he arrives home? They're ready to serve him. They're ready for him to recline at the table. But the master turns it around. And instead, he has them recline at the table. He girds himself up to serve. These servants who've been awake all night, been ready to do anything, are here doing nothing but being served. He doesn't recline at his table and they don't start bringing in the food. The master becomes a servant. And how shocking and amazing it is. And later we see Jesus do this very same thing himself. Acting out, some would say, this, even this parable. Turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. In the upper room on the night before his betrayal. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments... And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, You have no share with me. If the master doesn't serve the servants, the servants have no bond and fellowship with the master, Jesus is saying. Now we've seen and heard Jesus do some pretty amazing things in this series on the parables. And he is like the master in this parable today who treats the slaves of his household as masters. And the text says they are blessed. Now we need to understand something here about being blessed. The Greek word for blessed or blessed is makarios. And it speaks of a condition that already exists. Not of a future condition. Therefore the meaning here of their blessedness is not if these servants stay awake and are ready for service then the master will give them his, their reward or his blessing. So it's not if they do this, then the master will come home and reward them. Rather, it's saying servants or slaves who have their lamps lit 
and their robes duly belted and are awake, eagerly expecting the master, are already filled with blessing, are already in a state of blessedness. Therefore, the way they act and their staying alert is an expression of who they already are, not an attempt to earn something that they don't have. They don't know what's coming when the master returns. All they know is that their beloved master has given a command and they joyfully obey out of love and service, not out of an expectation for a reward. They are ready to feed their master if need be. But instead, their master feeds them. And he feeds them with presumably... Where did he get the food, right? He didn't hit up Wendy's or Chick-fil-A on the way home. If he left the banquet early, presumably he was able to bring some of the wedding feast home with him. They probably didn't have food ready because their master had gone off to eat. Gone off to a banquet. So they were ready for action. Ready for anything. But no commands about what to do. Think of this. The master feeds his servants with food from the marriage banquet. The master feeds his servants from a joyful feast and celebration. The really good stuff. And when it's, as he feeds them, he doesn't say, Hey, I brought some goodies home. You guys can have at it. He serves them himself. Now this parable, in spite of its drama, is often overlooked. And part of what makes this parable sometimes difficult to apply is that the servants actually don't do anything. Their only job, as we've already said, is to stay awake and to be ready for their master. They have no to-do lists or tasks. They're simply to expect the master. And we live in a hyperactive culture, and it's killing us. If you're not busy, then you're nobody. We all complain about it, but we all give in to the pressures and ideas that somehow busier is better, that we need to be active, and we need to somehow believe that more activities and being involved in more programs or clubs or social occasions or whatever is somehow going to improve our social standing. Worship and a day of rest is somehow some sort of social betrayal. And just as a side note here, as a point of privilege to men, a successful career is no rationale for neglecting your Lord or your family. One commentator writes about these servants, Christians are called to be faithful, not successful. And obedience is more important than production. So in conclusion, I just want to make two brief points of application. The first from this parable, we see that the Christian life, what we often call our discipleship, is about longing for Jesus and especially his return more than it is about any activity. Remember verse 34 before the parable, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We are to live like men and women who are servants that expect and anticipate their master at any time. How would that impact what we say? or what we think, or what we do, or what we watch, or what we choose not to do. J.C. Ryle says, if he cannot say from his heart, come Lord Jesus, then there must be something wrong about his soul. We are called as disciples to be servants with only one agenda, his agenda, 
the agenda of our master. Paul called himself a doulos, a slave, totally belonging and owned by his master, Jesus Christ. One commentator has said, the man who does well for himself is the man who gives up everything for Christ's sake. He is rich in grace here and he is rich in glory hereafter. Your life is not your own. Your life is in Christ. And the greatest blessing or good is to be with the Master. Secondly, we learn that our Lord is a self-emptying servant master. Jesus surprises all by becoming the Master. And He serves us from the table. A foretaste of the marriage feast that is yet to come. He comes in the present in the here and now, in the sacrament that is set before us this morning. And he feeds us. There is a marriage banquet in one sense that is still going on in heavenly glory for the saints who have already shed this earthly body and now live with the church triumphant. Our master is the only hero in all the Bible. The Bible never calls us to be like Daniel or David or Paul Paul only says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Jesus is our Lord, and he has set the example. Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Our life is in Christ. Our longing is for our master and his return. And he does something amazing. We don't serve him. He serves us. He meets us exactly where we are. And we're to be ready to do anything for him. But the glory of the gospel is that he has paid it all and he does it all. And he feeds us with what we desperately need, communion with himself. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would encourage our minds and that you would lift us up into heavenly places, that you would cause our hearts to long for you, that you would keep us alert and awake and ready, that we would seek you in all things. We confess our sins before you. We acknowledge that we have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. But we pray now that we would continue to be transformed by your powerful means of grace. In your name, amen.